Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you, Bonnie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. We're honored to welcome Mr. Elliot Abrams as our speaker today, who will brief us on our topic, U.S.-Israel relations in the Trump era. Mr. Abrams is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has had a distinguished career in government at both the State Department and the White House, having served in foreign policy positions for Presidents Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. Mr. Abrams has written many important books, with a new one to be released end of August 2017 entitled Realism and Democracy, American Foreign Policy After the Arab Spring. His blog on U.S. foreign policy, Pressure Points, can be found online at cfr.org. Little more than a week ago, President Trump made his first official trip to the Middle East, where he was the first U.S. president to fly from Riyadh to Tel Aviv, two countries that have no diplomatic relations. Significant symbolism, but is there substance to it? Mr. Abrams? Hi, and uh, thank you for the invitation to speak. Um, well, that's a very good question. Uh, what is the substance of policy? in the whole region. As I talk to people from the region, I would say, uh, before we turn to the Israeli-Palestinian question, there are a lot of um, friends of the United States who are very pleased about the attitudes, uh, the stances, if you will, that the administration is taking. For example, um, to do more to blunt uh, Iranian aggression in the region and to push back against Iran's efforts at regional hegemony, to do more to support Sunni friends of the United States, um, to end the period in which we sought daylight between the United States and Israel. These are all viewed in the region and by me as um, positive and helpful attitudes. But when you get beyond that and say, okay, Tell me exactly what the policy is and tell me exactly how it's going to be carried out. Tell me what the plans are uh, toward the JCPOA uh, in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq. I think it's harder to answer that question. And it's a bit harder when we turn to the question of uh, Israeli-Palestinian relations. Clearly, the administration has a view that it's time to go for a comprehensive settlement. Now, that's not new. I mean, that was Bill Clinton's view and George Bush's view and Barack Obama's view. And of course, they were wrong. They all failed. So it does raise this very interesting question of, well, what's new? Tell me what's different now that would suggest another effort will be successful. The administration is not saying, you know, Bill Clinton's immortal phrase, you've got to be caught trying. They're not doing this because they know they're going to fail, but they think an American president must always try. They are more optimistic than that. So what's different? Well, perhaps um, they don't think it's quite so difficult. Um, we've all heard these lines about, oh, they're an inch apart. We all know what the outcome is going to look like. Why can't we just get to it? Um, I hope that's not their view, although the president did say at one point, that it's easier than it looks. It's not easier than it looks. And if that's their view, then I think um, they are in for an unhappy surprise because it's, they're not an inch apart. 
the Israelis and Palestinians, and it isn't easy. And previous administrations didn't fail because they were all uh, stupid. Maybe it's the sense on the part of the administration, well, we're just better at this. We're better negotiators than they were. Again, um, I don't think that's right. Uh, and I don't think that that is a formula for success. The other explanation we hear is, well, the circumstances are different in that relations between Israel and the Sunni Arab states are better, better than they've ever been. Uh, they're good with Jordan and Egypt. They have been for a while, but they're better, uh, at least on security questions. And now there are some secret but nevertheless real relations with the Gulf Arab states. Now, that's true. I think uh, relations are better, but I don't think that that will bring a solution. Uh, first of all, uh, those relations may be better, but they're fragile. They're new. And there's a reason they're secret which is that uh, the Gulf Sunni states in question want them to be secret, not because the Israelis do. Um, they are worried. They are afraid of reactions from uh, Iran, from jihadis, from um, more radical groups. Uh, they're afraid of their own populations. So um, they're not, I think, going to come out of the closet on this uh, happily, willingly, quickly, um, and my fear is that these important new relationships will be overloaded, that instead of building on them toward the things that Israel and these countries agree on, like stopping Iran, we may be overloading them with um, discussions of something they don't agree on, namely the Palestinians. The administration also says that, um, well, it has a new approach, outside in instead of inside out. And then again, we get back to the Arabs. That is, um, what's different here is that we're not going to build a Palestinian state and then use those improved Israeli-Palestinian relations to improve Israel's relations with the Arabs. Rather, we're going to improve Israel's relations with the Arabs and use those improved relations uh, to get an Israeli-Palestinian agreement. Um, it's not a crazy approach, but it isn't going to be a successful approach, in my view. Um, <clears throat> for a number of reasons. Uh, I'll get to the critical one last, which is the Palestinians. But again, I think you can overload those relationships by trying to get um, more done publicly between Israel and uh, the Arabs um, than their own politics um, will permit. And uh, anyway, the issues, whether you approach them starting with the Arabs or not, remain extremely difficult one example, Jerusalem. But the critical, the critical reason it won't work, in my opinion, is the Palestinians aren't going to sign a peace agreement. Uh, when I left the government in 2009, I told the Obama people who were coming in, um, you need to know something, which is that uh, Mahmoud Abbas is not going to sign a deal. It doesn't matter what the content of the deal is. He's never going to get a better deal than Ehud Olmert offered him in 2008, uh, and to which he didn't respond. Um, whatever he's offered now is going to be a less good deal, and he's not going to accept it. He's 82. He's not a hero. He's not a charismatic figure. He is no longer a legitimate 
president because his election in January 2005 has long since become illegitimate with the passage of time. Um, he knows that anything he, he agrees to will immediately be attacked by Hamas and other radical elements uh, and jihadis and Iran and the other Palestinian groups like the PFLP uh, as treason. Yasser Arafat wouldn't sign, but you gave it all away. Um, he's not going to do it. I think what the Israelis and Palestinians are doing now is wondering when this effort fails, who will the president blame? And uh, this is a familiar pattern. But I think they are concerned about um, avoiding blame if the president becomes frustrated with the ability to, with, his, with the inability to get a deal. Um, one of the, I, I would just go further on this question of Palestinian statehood and the two-state solution as it stands now, uh, in the summer, basically, of, of 2017. My own view is that we should stop saying the two-state solution is the only possible outcome and the only desirable outcome. First of all, we don't know what the future holds. I don't think there are very many people who would have said 50 years ago that Israel would be holding on to the West Bank uh, and the Golan 50 years later, and Jerusalem, of course, as it is today. Um, so I don't, there are very few people who have a very good track record at predicting what will happen in the decades ahead. But I think it's pretty clear that if you could, well, here's a thought experiment. Eliminate terrorism and violence. There's no more terrorism and violence. And you create a Palestinian state tomorrow. It's not a viable state. It will fail. It has no resources. It cannot possibly incorporate a million Palestinians who might, might want to move there. Uh, it has no port. It has no airport. It has no currency. I could go on. So it would fail and become a danger to both Jordan and Israel. So um, I, I think we should be a little more humble in suggesting we all know what the future will bring and that the only possible viable, acceptable uh, outcome here is a uh, Palestinian state. Um, one final comment before we get to uh, Q&A, which would be more fun. There is an interesting gap growing, I think, between Congress and the administration on these questions. What's happening in Congress when it comes to the Palestinians? The answer is the Taylor Forsyth and a tougher position with respect to what used to be called incitement, by which is meant the glorification of terrorism, the teaching of hatred of Jews and Israel. Um, people on the Hill seem to have become really be fed up with it at this point uh, and willing to pass the Taylor Force Act, now with the support of the government of Israel, which would defund uh, uh, the, the PA, which would end American support for the Palestinian Authority, uh, while this uh, glorification of terrorism and payments to terrorists and their families continue. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the direction the administration is going, at least not uh, publicly as they move um, publicly toward an embrace of the Palestinian Authority as a partner for peace. Uh, that's a gap that looks like it'll keep growing. 
Um, okay. Um, there, I hope there are, this has raised a lot of questions in people's minds, and, and I'm uh, happy to try to address them. Thank you, Mr. Abrams. The question and answer period will now begin, and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. So again, if you wish to ask a question and join the question and answer queue, press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Okay, so Dr. Abrams, we have a number of people holding for questions, so we'll go to our first caller. Uh, caller, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when you hear your line is unmuted. Go ahead with your question, caller. Is your line uh, muted, perhaps? Yes, it was muted. Sorry about that. Hello, Elliot. This is Daniel Pipes. Uh, thank you for the very... Uh, can you hear me now? I can. Good. Uh, thank you for the quick and uh, very interesting uh, overview. Uh, one factor you did not mention as a problem for the uh, possible negotiations is Palestinian views, not just the elites, but the population, which is overwhelmingly against surveys after survey shows against any kind of reconciliation with Israel. Important for you? Yeah, and um, there have been, there's been some good, um, some good polling and some good uh, collection of years of polling, uh, most recently uh, by Daniel Polisar, who wrote some very good pieces about this for the Mosaic website, um, basically saying that um, there's a problem with Palestinian political elites, but there's also a problem, as, as you're uh, noting, with public opinion. That, that is to say that public opinion doesn't want to accept the only available um, compromises and is holding out for, you know, um, uh, Haifa um, and uh, Jaffa and uh, not the 67 borders, but the 48 uh, borders. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And in one way, it's not terribly surprising. Uh, that's what they have been hearing and learning from their own leaders um, for decades, for literally de generations now. Uh, compromise is treason. So it's not terribly shocking that that view uh, should be the dominant view in Palestinian society. Now, there is a question, and we don't know the answer, and maybe we'll never know the answer. What if you had decent leadership, um, which was trying to persuade people to compromise? Um, and this is a tragedy for the Palestinians. Uh, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you get uh, Havel and Valencia and Mandela, and sometimes you get Haj Amin al-Husseini and Yasser Arafat and people like that. Um, so we don't actually know what. Palestinian public opinion would be if there had been 50 years of efforts to teach about peace, but there haven't been. Uh, so I think, I think this is a problem. Now, uh, there is an alternative view, and the alternative view is if you could do a deal between the Palestinian leadership and Israel, and you could have a peace agreement, then 
you know, in time, public opinion would would change. So this kind of public opinion question is not as critical as actually reaching a deal. Again, I don't think that's a crazy opinion, but it seems to me wrong. Um, and actually, it seems to me it would create a very dangerous situation, because if you created a Palestinian state whose population, at least at the inception, had the views that we are talking about, there's no particular reason to think that, that irredentism would disappear, uh, or that, as we found in 2006, that Hamas wouldn't win elections, or that that state would be able, even if it were willing, uh, would be able to defeat uh, jihadism. So I think that I think that's a very dangerous formula, and and uh, I, I take your point, and I agree with you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go to our next caller. And caller, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when you're here. Your line has been unmuted. Harley Lipman, you had mentioned the Taylor Act. And I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but my understanding is that the efforts on the Taylor Act are to deny the Palestinian Authority money, which I think amounts to 70% of the budget, that goes to martyrs' families uh, who, who commit terrorism and murder innocent Israelis. Um, and, and that's the extent of it. The problem with that is that Let's even say the Taylor Act is passed. Again, if my understanding is correct, you'll, you'll tell me that in a moment. But uh, assuming it is, money's fungible. So let's say they don't get 7 8% of their budget, um, which is now uh, denied them by an act of Congress. Uh, well, uh, I mean, other than a moral victory that we don't want to, that it's unconscionable to pay terrorist families, which obviously it is unconscionable. What other practical benefits is there when they could just take from Peter to pay Paul and take money from the rest of the budget, which is a couple hundred million dollars? Um, some other way they'll maybe pay martyrs' families, or maybe some other country will step in and want to do that. I'm, I'm just wondering. I'm, I'm just trying to be very um, proactive in what's going to get best outcome for um, for Israel, and I, I just it just raises questions in my mind about the emphasis on the Taylor Act? Well, good question. Um, first of all, um, this is something that we should have done a long time ago. Because what it does, just uh, for clarification, it's the Taylor Force Act. Taylor Force was an American soldier who was killed by a terrorist while uh, a tourist uh, in Israel. Um, first of all, we can't do anything else, it seems to me. That is, you're right, money is fungible. So what are we going to do, continue to give the money and say, well, we know that some of this money goes to terrorists and it rewards terrorists, but what the hell? So I think once this is brought to Congress, um, they must act. And it would be bad enough, by the way, if the money were going to terrorist families. But there's something to add, two things to add. First, it's going to terrorists. That is, stipends don't just go to families. They go to the individual terrorists. Secondly, the size of the stipend depends on the severity of the crime committed. So, for example, if you tried to kill an Israeli, you, go, you get a certain amount of money. But if you succeeded in killing an Israeli, you get more money. Um, this is obscene, uh, which is why I think Congress will actually uh, take this action. 
And it's interesting. You know, the, the Palestinians could implement a welfare system that simply says, look, for anybody who's in prison, any reason, anybody, any, there'll be some kind of uh, uh, welfare support for the family whose breadwinner has now disappeared. And it doesn't depend on what crime. It depends on um, the size of the family, number of dependent children. But they didn't do that. Um, money is fungible. Well, money is fungible, but money is limited. They're vastly in debt as it is. They live on foreign aid, and they don't get enough foreign aid. And it isn't just the United States that's beginning to clamp down. Um, about a week ago, the Palestinian Authority opened a what they called a cultural center uh, for youth named the Dalal Mugrabi Cultural Center. Dalal Mugrabi was a terrorist, a terrorist uh, who led an infamous uh, massacre several uh, decades ago in which dozens of Israelis, including children, were killed. Um, and uh, a fuss was raised because it said on the sign that Norway had been partial funder. Uh, and uh, rather to my surprise, uh, the Norwegian foreign minister about a day later announced this was an outrage. They wanted nothing to do with this. This was glorifying murder. And if any Norwegian funds were used in the center, they wanted the money back. So we're not the only ones beginning to say this. The, um, the uh, British uh, aid agency, DFID, announced last year that they're going to stop giving any money to the PA. Their money will go to direct providers, say, of medicine in a hospital, but not through the Palestinian Authority because money is fungible and it might be paying uh, rewards for terrorists. So I think if we all do this, pressure is going to start to mount on the PA. It is true that Qatar, for example, could step in and say, here's $500 million. It's possible, but I'm not so sure that they're going to want to do that. I'm not so sure they're going to want to take, uh, they might, um, but at the very least it would be important for the United States, I think, um, to take this moral position, and I think it will translate into a squeeze on the PA. Okay, thank you. We'll go to our next caller. Please go ahead when you hear your line has been unmuted. Caller, I think your line might be muted. Caller, are you there? Hello. Yeah, this hey, is Judy Hershon. Go ahead. Can I ask? Yeah, hi. Um, yes, um, I'm trying to figure out why, given the fact Trump has surrounded himself with the ambassador he has and Steve Bannon and all these people who are very well aware of the situation, why is that not reflected in his tone and in his negotiations and feeling that Abbas actually is telling him really wants the peace deal? It, it doesn't make any sense. And I perhaps you could comment on that. Hmm. Well, $64,000 question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, first, it, it's not what uh, the president was saying during his campaign. Um, and there are a number of people in the administration who have uh, long years of support. I mean, uh, you know, Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt, David 
uh, Friedman being three of them. Um, and, and I have only one theory to offer. And it may be completely wrong. It's just a theory. But here's my theory. All of the people you mentioned have no time in government. They've never actually dealt with these issues. Even people on the outside who've been very pro-Israel. And they haven't really, in a sense, spent any time looking at the arguments of the other side or listening to them or meeting with the people on the other side. They were pro-Israel. They knew they were pro-Israel. And they have given money, uh, not only to Israel generally, but even to uh, settlement activities. And now something happened to them for the first time um, after the election, if not after the inauguration, which is they meet, let's say, the King of Jordan or the uh, Crown Prince, who's basically the ruler of the United Arab Emirates. These are attractive people in many ways, persuasive people. And they sit down, and all of a sudden, you, you hear for the first time alternative arguments, and you don't know the answers to those arguments because you never heard them before. And the example I would give is Jerusalem and moving the embassy. Um, you know, you sit down with the King of Jordan, and the King of Jordan says, presumably, oh, don't move the embassy. It would be disastrous, and there would be rioting, uh, and it would set back the cause of peace, and it's just terrible. You know, now a lot of us have been hearing those arguments, I mean, in my case, directly from the king for a long time. And I'm not persuaded by those arguments. And I think there are very good answers to those arguments. Um, but I think if you're absolutely new to this, you don't know the answers. And you are very taken by the arguments. And that, that's a problem that has troubled me and I think is at least a partial explanation for what appears to be a significant change in administration um, attitudes um, toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Okay, thank you. We'll go to our next caller with a question. Please go ahead when you hear your line has been unmuted. This is David Levinson, and uh, I have a couple of comments I'd like you to comment on. Why do we always hear of these incremental steps, these small steps, and never hear that Israel should just annex all of Area C and Jerusalem, treat the rest of it like we used to treat uh, uh, Alaska and uh, Hawaii, where there's no vote in the national election, but they kind of run their own affairs. Yes, the rest of the world would complain, but so what? If Assad were the Prime Minister of Israel, there would be no Palestinians, no Arabs, no the West Bank, uh, in Judea and Samaria. The world gets used to it. Why don't we just, why doesn't Israel just the next area see, the next Jerusalem and be done with it? Um, okay. Um, well, you're asking really two questions. One is about the United States and one is about Israel. Why doesn't Israel do it? Well, um, Israel has annexed Jerusalem. Um, they have not annexed any part of Judea or Samaria. Um, and uh, I think the answer in part is, well, they're divided. That is, Israelis are divided on this question of 
how much of the West Bank, if any, to annex. Um, I think, you know, uh, Israel's had a number of uh, uh, right-of-center governments, which really had right-of-center governments about, well, since Sharon was, was elected. Um, you've had um, Kadima and Likud. Um, but they haven't done it. And I think one of the, one of the reasons is um, Israelis are not sure uh, what the ultimate status of Judea and Samaria should be. In fact, there is a debate now in Israel about Jerusalem in one sense, which is that there are good arguments, I think, uh, certainly some Israelis think, that the Jerusalem that they annexed too large. Uh, you know, the, the, the Jerusalem that is part of Israel is the largest Jerusalem in history. It includes things like the Shuafat refugee camp. And there are a number of Israelis who are suggesting that, that some parts of Jerusalem should be, be deaccessioned and made part of the, um, of the West Bank, so that there's a more Jewish uh, Jerusalem. Anyway, uh, so part of this, I think, is that Israelis uh, are divided not on Jerusalem, but they are divided on how much of Judea and Samaria uh, should be annexed. Um, secondly, I think the United States, therefore, um, is not going to take a position on that and get out ahead of a government of Israel. Um, obviously, we would be hearing about, we'd hear lots of complaints about that from, um, from the Arabs, um, how strongly they would protest. I mean, there'd be a lot of rhetoric, but um, how, what they would actually do, I think, is a, is a, is a real question. Um, I think the first step, personally, I think the first step is Jerusalem. That is, for the United States to make the move on Jerusalem. As you know, the president has to make that decision in June. Um, and I think that if he said, look, um, the Arabs have no claim whatsoever to West Jerusalem, which is where the Knesset is and the Prime Minister's office and the Bank of Israel and, and so on. Um, and that's where our embassy is going to be. And there should be zero argument about this. Um, I think that would, be a, that would be accepted by the Arab states. I mean, obviously, we would have to talk to them first and just say to them, you should have no argument about this, none whatsoever. And don't don't give us a load of nonsense about rioting in the streets. You don't allow rioting in the streets when you don't want it. So if you don't want it, you won't allow this rioting either. Um, so I think, I think that would be the first step, rather than dealing with um, parts of Judea and Samaria. I think it would be very odd um, for Israel to, um, to take that step with a very divided electorate. Um, I would hope that if they're going to do that, they do it on the basis of an election. Um, when Olmert was elected in 2005, um, he ran, sorry, 2006, uh, he ran on a policy of trying to make a deal with the Palestinians, and if it failed, uh, basically pulling settlements back to the um, the, the line of the security barrier, he won with that policy. So you could say that he didn't pursue that policy, um, partly because of the war in Lebanon and then his own problems, personal problems. But he would have been legitimate in pursuing it because he could say, I ran on this, and I won. 
So everybody knows that I'm going to pursue this policy. Uh, if that is, for example, Netanyahu's policy, the time has come to annex all or significant parts of Area C. I think Bennett might should, run on that. Yeah, I think he should run on that, or others should run on that and see if they can win an election. That's the point at which they should come to the United States and say, okay, this is what the people of Israel want. That's why I was elected with that platform, and I want your support. But they haven't asked for our support to do that. Thank you. Mr. Abrams, we're past 4.30 at 4.32, but we have one caller left in the line who's been waiting. Do you have the time let's to take, and take it? That, yeah, let's take that last call. Okay, please go ahead, Bonnie, instruct him. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to our last caller, and caller, please go ahead when you hear your line has been unmuted. Um, I'm the last one. You cut me off two weeks ago at the council, so this time I managed to squeeze in. Thank you, Elliot. <laughs> Um, the question I had is, at that lunch that we had, um, an Israeli visitor told me that there was concern in Jerusalem about the initial meeting between Abbas and uh, uh, Trump in Washington. Uh, they were concerned that the two hit it off. Uh, then uh, when uh, uh, Trump visited Bethlehem and met with him, there's apparently reports about shouting match. Uh, of course, Harris immediately denied it today, but I wonder if you have more information on that. I don't have any information on a shouting match. I am told that the president did uh, rightly raise the, let's call it, the incitement issue um, and the payments uh, to um, uh, terrorists. Um, I would be surprised if there were shouting uh, in a context like that. Uh, either from Trump or from, uh, certainly from Abbas. So uh, I, I, um, I didn't believe the shouting part, that there could have been a more tense meeting um, does seem to be plausible. I did think the initial meeting in Washington was a lost opportunity to put pressure on Abbas. Um, he was invited and he was treated uh, royally um, in exchange for nothing. That is, uh, there was no reason that he should have anticipated or expected an early meeting with the president uh, just a couple of weeks after the Netanyahu meeting. So it would have been very easy to say, look, uh, the president is contemplating uh, inviting you for a meeting in Washington. But before that takes place, we would need to see A, B, C, and D. And uh, we didn't do that. Apparently, we did not ask for anything in exchange for the meeting. And I think that was a, uh, a real tactical mistake. But the direct answer to your question is, I have not uh, heard that there was an actual shouting match and tend to disbelieve it. Uh, will, will the president sign the waiver the day after tomorrow, do you think? Uh, these are, you know, i give you the answer. The famous Yogi Berra answer. It's very hard <laughs> predictions, especially about the future. The future. Um, my uh, suspicion is that he will sign it, uh, which I think would be a mistake. Um, but what I what I suspect they're going to do is sign it with a statement saying, you know, we're doing this because um, we're intent on uh, a peace agreement that would resolve the issue of Jerusalem permanently. And I won't keep signing waivers the whole time I'm president if there's no 
progress, but at this moment, I will sign one. That's my guess. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Puri. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Middle East Forum would like to thank Mr. Abrams for his time briefing us and for our participants for calling in. This concludes our conference call.